0: I'm David Katneys, Welcome back to Too Close to Call, the podcast. Today's guest, Vivek Ramaswamy, a 2024 Republican presidential candidate who you probably don't know much about but are learning more and more about and I think will become much more familiar to you once the debates commence in August and September. Because I think he's going to come out a winner in these debates. He's only 37. He's an Indian American. He's a 100 millionaire. I think his net worth is estimated to be $630 million. He was a hedge fund manager before he started investing in biotech companies. He's very smart. He's agile. And he is popping up everywhere. He's got this... All media talk to all comers strategy where he's going into the lion's den, he's going on the breakfast club, the you know, the black hip hop radio show, he's going on MSNBC, and he's coming on too close to call, which I like. I mean, this is why this is this is why candidates who put themselves out there get the benefit of the doubt with reporters. Reporters like being able to speak to candidates. And Vivek is doing more media and more interviews than anybody in the 2024 field on either side, I think. Maybe RFK Jr. is doing as many. He is running on a pretty conservative platform, an America first on steroids platform, you might say, even. He wants to go further than Trump on some of these issues. He wants to militarize the border to deal with drug cartels and illegal immigration. He wants to Completely get rid of the Department of Education. Get rid of the FBI. Not replace it. Get rid of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Lay off 75% of the FDA. He talks a lot about meritocracy. And that we need a new national unity around controlling your own destiny and not victimhood. And I challenge him on that. On the victimhood question. He believes the left uses victimhood as a crutch for... You know, race, gender, sexual orientation. But isn't Trump and the MAGA movement the epitome of victimhood on the right? One thing I really respect about Vivek is that he does take on every question. No question he's a politician. He's very agile. You're not going to agree with everything that comes out of his mouth. But he might be the smartest candidate in the race. He's sort of a Pete, he's sort of the Republican Pete Buttigieg uh a little more animated you would even say and that is going to be a fascinating factor as we move into debate season and he gets next to these other mostly professional politicians i he's he has a real chance to skyrocket and make a run at this i'm not saying he can overtake trump but if you were to ask me right now who i think the last candidate might be in this race against trump it's not Ron DeSantis, not right now. It's Vivek Ramaswamy. And we thank him for coming on Too Close to Call. Nice hey, to e- meet you, Vivek. Dave Catneys here Dave. in Washington. Are you in Ohio today or are you on the trail? I'm in Ohio for a rare occasion. <laughs>
1: yes. yeah. Got it. So doing well.
0: uh, I have listened to a bunch of your podcasts to do my research for this interview. I must point out that The Breakfast Club... Stood out to me. You really went into the lion's den there. At the end, I think you got really hammered. The one woman was hammering you for not having service or not served in student council. And I must say, I think you handled it really well. Probably better than I would have. I mean, they really went at you. I can't imagine Trump. I think Trump would have just blown up and called her nasty. I can't imagine Ron DeSantis doing it. Are you taking a, a page out of the Pete Buttigieg playbook here, going everywhere, staying poised, even when people get aggressive, even when people are in opposition? Is that a, is, Did you learn from Pete Buttigieg on that?
1: I did not learn from Pete Buttigieg, although many people have drawn that analogy, so it makes me want to go back and look at how he did things. This is how I'm wired. And frankly, it's always been my MO to talk to people who disagree with me at least as much as people who do agree with me there there was a point in that interview where it would have been easy enough for me to say look I I could thought of I had had thought of a million ways on the spot that if my goal was to bury this woman in a debate right there we could have done it I didn't think that was going to be productive I'm not running to lead a political party I'm running to lead a nation and I think much of what showed up in her questions was a was a kind of earnest psychological insecurity that goes to the heart of what I think we're suffering as a nation right now. We have lost our sense of self-confidence as a nation. That starts with the loss of self-confidence as individuals. She, among other things, clearly wanted to be heard, wanted to share that experience of all the great things she had done in student council when she was in middle school. I didn't want to belittle that. I didn't think that was going to move the ball forward for me in, in burying this commentator who really i'm not going to intersect with likely again didn't seem like that was going to be productive versus demonstrating through example how people who disagree with one another deeply can still engage in open discourse and conversation so that their listeners even if not the people in the room can actually learn something from it and we have had success with that across the country now don lemon you know i I treat him a little bit differently he's a leading media figure purporting to be a journalist at that point you know, and he's no longer in the air in part owing to the interaction we had. I'm trying to be as useful and productive as I can. But yes, talking to everybody and ratcheting it up or down based on what I think is appropriate and most productive, that is a big part of how I'm running this campaign.
0: I spoke to your campaign manager the other day, and he said that you were frustrated that other Republican candidates don't go on and talk to adversarial media, diverse media. Do you think that's hurting the field and in particular do you think that's her Ron DeSantis?
1: look it's i would call it more disappointing because i look at my fellow contenders in the republican primary many of them at least as important foot soldiers in the fight to revive our country and i don't think we're putting our best foot forward if we preach about free speech to roomfuls of people who agree with us but refuse to engage with the people who disagree with us I expect to be the nominee. I expect to be the next president. But it will make my job that much more difficult if other Republicans are hiding in their own shell. And so I hope what I'm doing in leading the way here, in talking to everyone, we have a talk to everyone policy in this campaign, so-called far left, so-called far right. By the way, I don't even think those labels mean much. That's what we're going to have to have, that revival of spirit in this country to revive our national soul. And that's important. That's a big part of where I'm leading by example. I hope that provides inspiration to my fellow Republican contenders. I think some of them are taking that cue and are trying to do it, which I think is a good thing. You know, my campaign would say they're copying you. I say, no, 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 don't talk about it that way. This is good for our movement and for our country. But yes, so far, I've been disappointed that the other candidates haven't done it to the same extent, because I think it will make all of our jobs more difficult to actually revive this nation.
0: Ron DeSantis' campaign still insists
1: that this is a two-man race,
0: him versus Trump.
1: I think uh, yeah, I think they may be right about that, but it's not the two candidates they, they have in mind. You, you think you're in second place now? I think functionally we're on a trajectory to, to be in second place. I think functionally I am in second place because the metric I would look at, I'm in second place by a wide margin in, in the metric that actually matters. I, I haven't talked about this before, and so it might be interesting to dig in here. And one of the interesting things about Trump in 2015 is even before he was number one in the polls, he wasn't spending money on TV ads nationally or in the early States. And yet people were still gravitating to him. So the metric to look at is polls divided by the number of dollars, or you could look at it the other way around the number of dollars spent on TV ads divided by where you are in the polls. If you look at that, Trump was off the charts compared to jeb bush and scott walker long before he was ahead in that poll if you look at those numbers now we're not i don't believe right now on tv in any form nationally or otherwise and yet the other candidates and mostly their super PACs are dumping money onto tv ads and yet we still see the poll numbers we do that's 2015 all over again and so if you look at dollars per poll number spent on tv ad dollars per poll number it's not even close where we are in this race. And so that's the metric that actually matters. And I think that the other candidates are going to be at ground floor where you know Trump and I are the only ones who are really dominating that metric. And so I do think it's a two-man race. I think it's very quickly going to be evident that it's a two-man race, Trump and myself. I think that 2015 teaches us a lot of lessons. I think that voters in our Republican base certainly don't want super PAC puppets. That's why Jeb Bush and Scott Walker relatively quickly met the fates that they did. Voters don't want to hear about a governor droning on about his accomplishments without a vision for what we're actually doing as a country. And I'm talking about 2015 here and 2016. But I think that's one of the lessons that certainly I think will be applicable this time around as well.
0: Right. But Governor DeSantis' signature line is Florida's where woke goes to die. He is in his second term as a governor, of one of the largest states in the country. Why yeah. isn't he a more effective combatant of woke culture
1: than you? So, first of all, I want to say something really clearly. I think Governor DeSantis has been a good governor in Florida. When I'm the president of the United States, as I expect to be, I'm going to be relying on him, as I am many other governors and leaders across this country, to continue to play the effective roles that they have. One of the things I love about Ron is he's an effective executor. Take Kristi Noem's vision in South Dakota that she started with. He took that and then applied that in Florida. I'm grateful that he read Woke Inc., And the book that I wrote took that and implemented that much of that vision in Florida. And so I think that's outstanding and necessary for a governor. And he's embodied part of what other governors should aspire to. When it comes to leading this country, I think what we need is a leader who can actually articulate a vision of who we are as Americans. What does it mean to be an American? Where are we going? Not just what are we running from? What are we running to? And I think that's different than just being an executor of someone else's vision. The other thing that's really important is that when it comes to the president, when we're talking about actually dismantling the administrative state, and I've offered unprecedented clarity in how we would actually shut down multiple government agencies, reduce the size of the federal employee headcount by over 75%. When it comes to declaring independence from China, We have to first declare independence from the mega donor class in the Republican Party. And that's what's different about me and everyone else in this field is I'm the only one who's actually independently able to speak the truth without mega donor influence. We have a lot of super PAC puppets in the Republican Party. We had it in 2015. I think that that's unfortunately a trend that's become normal in our party. But when it comes to the president of the United States to actually speak the truth and deliver on it, it is going to take. An independent outsider who is not dependent on the donor class for having their bread buttered. And I think that's one of the advantages that I bring to this race. It's a disadvantage because I'm not on TV ads across the country in a way that other candidates are. But it's an advantage. And the true advantage is that I'm actually able to speak freely and without constraint. And when it comes to the presidency and the White House, I believe that's what we need. So one of the things you speak a lot
0: about that I've heard in previous interviews is victimhood and a victimhood becoming currency on the left. When you see people use race, sex, sexual orientation to explain maybe a deficiency or a failure. Isn't Donald Trump and the MAGA movement, though, the epitome of victimhood and grievance on the right? I don't hear you mention them. Isn't the MAGA movement? rooted in
1: victimhood and grievance. So I think we need to be precise here. Uh, I would not characterize the MAGA movement as grounded in grievance. I think that there's real pride in putting America and American interests first rather than fighting foreign pointless wars somewhere else. I think that's grounded in a coherent philosophy and one that I embrace. But I want to push back on you a little bit. I think that uh, since you said that I'm not talking about that, I think you're wrong about that. I have an entire chapter in my book called Nation of Victims entitled Conservative Victimhood. I just came from a large audience and crowd in Iowa late last night, flew back here to Ohio where what I told them what I told them, I'm going to say exactly what I told them. I told them I speak to left wing audiences all the time and I tell them hardship is not a choice. Hardship is something that happens to you. Victimhood is a choice. I say that in commencement addresses that I've given but I said to the same audience last night, we got to practice what we preach as well. We've encountered hardship. We're not on an even playing field, but we should not choose to be victims. We choose to be victorious. I say this to conservative audiences all the time. And so, yes, I do believe that you know the media does often suffer from selective hearing, and that's okay because it's hard to consume information all at once in the siloed echo chambers that we live in. But absolutely, I'm consistent that part of what it means to be an American is that hardship is part of what defines who we really are by how we respond to it we don't choose to be victims we choose to be victors that's what it means to be a conservative it's what it means to be an american i've been very consistent about that throughout and it's consistent in how i'm running this campaign i think it's important not to fall into the trap of saying that all grievances are created equal there's a difference between a grievance that began two and a half centuries ago and having been a participant in a presidential election where a piece of information, the most damning piece of information about one of the candidates was systematically suppressed on the eve of an election, that your social media account was locked if you spread the Hunter Biden laptop story, or you said the COVID pandemic began in a lab in China, that you were censored, derided as a racist, locked and shut up from speaking. I think that not all grievances are created equal. And I think that's important to see.
0: But you think Trump but more is the victim of the of the criminal justice system right now,
1: I do think that the criminal justice system is not being applied even handedly as applied to Donald Trump. I think the two indictments so far that have been brought against him for legally rigorous reasons, I've argued on the pages of the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere are absolutely politicized. I think we have to be in a position to speak that truth. I am in this race to lead us forward. I think it is important that we as a country do not set a precedent of one political party weaponizing the justice system, against its disfavored political opponents in a way that it would not have done against a different citizen. I think that's an awful precedent in our country. I'm in this race to stop now running from something, though. Now is our moment to start running to something, to our vision of what it means to be an American. That's what I want. I want us to move forward in a country. We cannot move forward until we have openly aired the views that have been systematically suppressed. You can't censor speech for two years and then say move forward. I think you have to give people a chance to speak openly, to be heard. I think January 6th was the culmination of a year of systematic censorship in this country. And I don't want to see what happened on that day or something like it happen again. And I think our best path to do it is actually to have free, unfettered, open speech and debate in this country. But that's part of the path to moving forward. And that's where I'm leading us. And I think the left wallows in victimhood narratives. I don't want to see the right emulate what the left does. I want to see us move forward as one nation. I believe I'm the best positioned candidate in this race to actually unite all Americans around a common set of ideals that I still believe unite us. That's why I'm in this race.
0: The suspicion or knock against you is that you're a Trump surrogate and that you're in the race to siphon away votes from DeSantis and that this will be re- you will be rewarded for this in the end with a cabinet position, you know, Trump's endorsement for another political office. Are you going to be willing to confront Donald Trump if you believe this is a two two man race, as you have said, are you going to be willing to confront Donald Trump on a debate stage?
1: I will confront anybody on a debate stage from Don Lemon to Chuck Todd to Donald Trump to Ron DeSantis it doesn't matter. If I'm running to sit across the table from Xi Jinping, I will sit across the table from anybody in this country. I've already demonstrated that in this race. I have, as I said, we have a talk to everyone strategy. I do not hide from open debate. The real answer, though, is I'm not running against anybody. I know that some of the other candidates, political machines have put out this myth as they've been threatened by my rise in the polls. I've already been public that I would not accept a cabinet position. I think that I would be much more effective in the private sector. I've written, you know, I write a book about every eight months for the last several years through my thought leadership, through starting companies like Strive, which now competes against the likes of BlackRock and Vanguard. That's a big way of having a positive impact in this country. But I think I can have an even bigger impact by leading a national revival like like Ronald Reagan did in 1980. He brought a country together. He led us out of a national identity crisis. That's what this moment calls for in 2024. I think I'm the single candidate who can actually deliver a landslide election like what Reagan did in 1980 with the Reagan revolution. I'm bringing the Ramaswamy revolution in 2024. And I think that's really important. 40% of our donors to this campaign are first time ever donors to the Republican Party in any form compared to 2% for more normal Republican candidates. That's why I'm in this race. I'm not in this to run against somebody. I'm not in this. There are other candidates who are airing their grievances against Donald Trump. There are other candidates who are airing their own personal grievances. That's not why I'm in this race. I think we go further if we do it based on first principles and moral authority. And that is exactly our path to, I believe, not only winning this primary, which I believe we will, but to win this general election in a landslide.
0: All right, let me just do a quick rapid fire round because I know we're short on time. Yeah.
1: Give me somebody you would consider for your running mate. So uh, there are actually a lot of people on that list. I I could give you my other cabinet appointments. I don't want to name specific names now, but what I will say is they will include people who have been conventional politicians, but also people who have been far outside of electoral politics as well. They could include other contenders in this Republican primary field, and they could even include people who who have not been traditional Republicans in the past. What's in your earbuds right now? Oh, it's just the
0: speaker thing that I can hear you <laughs> on. But what are you What are you listening to? Oh, oh li- I thought you meant like right now. I was no, literally no, no. listening. <laughs> it's rapid fire. I mean, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, sorry, let me rephrase the question.
1: Yeah. What's your favorite song? Do
0: you oh, listen to music?
1: Yeah, so I, it's been a while since right now when we travel with our two sons, It's the soundtrack to Cars 3, the movie. And before that, it was Cars 1. So when we're going on our campaign bus across Iowa, New Hampshire, that's what we're jamming to. And I would give anything to change that up to music that I used to listen to. One of my favorite songs used to be Lose Yourself. And uh, so I, I do a pretty good Lose Yourself. I probably do a better karaoke than anybody you've met to lose yourself on him. I so. won a
0: karaoke competition in Washington, DC in 2014. So I will, let's, challenge we should that. make it a campaign event. I, think. I did let's, a Nicki Minaj. Yeah. I did a Nicki Minaj, uh, super bass rendition. So if you
1: come to one of our events, and, okay. you know, we want to do, we'll do it on stage. You have my deal on that. Let's let's do it. All
0: right. Finally. Um, what's your media consumption? What's the first thing you read, watch, listen to in the morning or the last thing before you, before you hit the pillow?
1: editorial page of the wall street journal every day editorial page of either the new york times or the washington post every day i want to understand i think it's important i read the news i consume that through my phone i read the paper copy of each of those because actually one of the ways that i get to my own views is hearing the best arguments from all sides you don't just hear the facts presented through news many of those news pages have turned into editorial pages anyway so i think you might as well just read the editorial page and i that's that's what i tend to consume. The highest quality definitely is the Wall Street Journal's editorial page. It's been sad to see the decline of the New York Times editorial quality. It's, you know, it, it's been less rigorous. The Washington Post has gotten a little bit better. So I'm veering more in that direction. But one of those plus the Wall Street Journal editorial page.
0: All right. Final one, book recommendation that for our listeners.
1: Yes. Uh, one that my wife and I are making our way through right now. G-Man it stands for Government Man. But the book's title is G-Man. It's about J. Edgar Hoover and the history of the FBI. It's not some right-wing screed. It's by a Yale professor. Best I know, he might be a left-leaning guy, but it's a Pulitzer Prize-winning book. Outstanding exposition and history of an institution that its corruption will not surprise you after you read this book. It was made to be as corrupt as it is today because it's been just that corrupt all the way along. And it is eye-opening on how the administrative state, the federal administrative police state, actually works. It will send chills down the spines of Republicans and Democrats alike.
0: All right, Vivek Ramaswamy, thanks for coming on Too Close to Call. It's good to be on, man. Thank you. Vivek Ramaswamy, there's a charisma to Vivek, a charismatic preparedness. You feel like he's taking the time to walk these issues through his head, most issues, honestly, which is unique and admirable, and he's going to get good press for it, or he's going to get a burst of it, at least at the outset. It's like he's got a legal pad of notes on most everything you ask him about, and journalists are attracted to that. No matter your ideology, I know Republicans are going to say the media is against them. But honestly, accessibility, which is a more dangerous drug for journalists to consume, will help you, just going to help you in this primary. And he's new and he's fresh. And the knives are coming out for him. There is a Washington Examiner this, story this week that he misrepresented when he first voted. He said he first voted in 2020, which means he was, he's pretty new to politics, right? Uh, they uncovered that he voted for a libertarian, I believe, in 2004. And Ramaswamy's folks' the campaign is, is sure-fired that it came from the DeSantis camp. They think DeSantis is coming at him with oppo. Frankly, output doesn't work anymore, and Vivek is too available and too transparent. The fact that he didn't come clean on how he voted when he was 19 is not going to matter. But more instructive is that they are starting to dig up stuff on him and place it to, to put him in a bad light. It makes sense because he is now, if you look at national polling, he is polling third in the Republican primary. It's Trump, DeSantis, who is on the backslide, and then Vivek Ramaswamy. He's fourth in Iowa behind Tim Scott, but but not by much, by a couple points. This guy's going to be a factor, and watch him win that first debate. I can't wait to watch him and Chris Christie go at it in the first debate. They're probably going to be the two best debaters. Trump can have good debates, and 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 who knows if Trump will even participate. And the other question I have is 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 will we see if Vivek continues to rise? And we touched on this in the interview. Will he go at Trump? Will he really take it to Trump, or is he gonna is he gonna go at DeSantis and you know Tim Scott and these other guys around him? Is anybody gonna take it to Trump besides DeSantis? DeSantis has to. Is anybody else, or is everybody else sort of playing for VP? If you enjoyed the interview with Vivek, throw us some stars and likes on. Spotify, on Apple Pods, wherever you're listening to this. And if you haven't become a subscriber yet on Too Close to Call, what a great time. Upgrade. Upgrade to paid. Thanks very much. See you next time.